0: Welcome to the Zero to Profitable Franchise Podcast, the best place for you to come to figure out the right franchise to buy and how to get and stay profitable. My name is Tark Johnson, and I've bought, grown, and sold multiple franchises and got myself free from corporate America, and now I'm on a mission to help you do that too. Here, you'll find some of the most in-depth profitable franchise secrets, tangible strategies, and specific mindsets to help you create your dream life through franchising. Do you know what one of the best things about owning a business is when you're ready to move on, you can sell it sometimes for a lot of money. Here's the thing. You can't sell a job back to your employer after you leave. So in this episode, I talked to Paul Evans, whose firm specializes in helping entrepreneurs sell their businesses. His firm recently helped an Arby's franchisee sell their 49 locations. This episode will inspire you and open your eyes to what's possible. Imagine one day being able to sell your business for millions of dollars after having worked years to build it. Paul will break down everything you need to know about selling a business. And if you want to buy a franchise in the next 12 months, you can check out my free franchise masterclass at buyaprofitablefranchise.com. And if you want to work with me and my team on finding or buying a franchise or resale business, you can go to tarikjohnson.com consulting, and we're happy to see if we can help. With that said, let's jump into episode number 16 of the Zero to Profitable Franchise Podcast. Hey, before we jump into the episode, if you've gotten value from any of the content I put out, it's not easy and and it really takes a lot of time to create this content. So if you're watching on YouTube, please hit the like button and drop a comment, anything, even a smiley face. It helps the YouTube algorithm show the episode to more and more people. And if you're listening on a podcast platform, Please rate and drop a quick review. Both of these things are free and take no longer than 30 seconds. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, welcome to episode number 16. I'm here with Paul Evans. Paul, I'm super excited to talk to you today. Thanks for uh, thanks for being willing to come on.
1: Hey, I'm thrilled to be here as well. Thank you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So can you just kind of explain what it is that, that you do in the marketplace? Like for me, this is actually... Probably one of the most exciting podcast conversations that I think uh, that, I, that I'm going to have because I think the topic is just awesome.
1: Yeah, I would say for, for your folks, what we do is we represent franchise owners in the marketplace when they're ready to sell. Some may have a single location and they're going to sell right back into the system itself because just about every system has other owners who are looking to acquire. But especially if you've got multiple units, then you're talking about maybe going outside of just the regular system and taking it out into the the marketplace and getting as much money as possible. And so what our firm does is we represent the seller. And, and I'm we mean that with all our heart. We're not out there trying to play both sides of the game or anything like that. We 100% represent the seller and try to get them the most money for their franchise. Um, we don't work just with franchises. We also work with your typical business owner as well. Um, and so that's what we do. We represent the sell side and try to get a maximum value and hopefully the best deal structure-wise and things along those lines.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So just to give people a sense of... of the type of transactions that you do. And you don't necessarily need to disclose names if you feel comfortable doing that. Great in terms of brand names. But can you just give us like two or three examples of like size or type of transactions that you've done just to kind of give a reference point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let me give you a couple of those. One uh, was a franchise of Sonny's Barbecue. And what was unique about this is it ended up being nine total units but two different franchisees. So that was kind of mm-hmm. what was interesting. And that that's something else. I'm I'm glad we even hit this topic because sometimes people feel like, well, I'm all alone if I'm gonna go out here and sell and I've only got a unit or I've got two units. If you happen to know other owners who wanna sell simultaneously, the more the number of units, the higher the multiples going to be, and usually the better the price is going to be. You know, so interesting. part of that. Yeah, geography, things along those lines, too. But one of these owners had four units. The other owner had five units for a total of nine. And they ended up getting a much higher price than if it had just been the four, just been the five. So that's that's one example. Um, and that was, you know, a total of nine units. Uh, we also uh, did uh, an Arby's franchisee. And I think that was a total of 48 units and 36 36- wow parcels of real estate with it as well. So it wow. can be you know a small number. It can be a large number uh, because there's always kind of the interesting parties that are out there. And let me dive into that second one a little bit more uh, because what happened there was that uh, the, the corporation, the franchisor came and basically said, you know, here's what we'll give you. And it was a really lowball offer. And so the owner said, well, let's go to market. So we went to market and we got several great bids from private equity groups. And so Arby's then decided to exercise their rights of first refusal, but they had to pay the price that the other private equity groups had come to the table with, which was far more. Uh, So that type of competitive process is what can make a difference. Because you may feel like, well, I'm just going to sell back to the franchise or and that could be a possibility but if you can go outside get the price up, and then if they've decided to exercise their rights well that's all right too wow that's that's a that's incredible i mean
0: 48 units 36 parcels of real estate i mm-hmm. can't even imagine what the size of that transaction was i'm so, i'm sure it was huge but what a cool process and that you guys were able to help the owner <clears throat> excuse me get so much more mm-hmm. money and value and you know, this is why working with professionals like yourself is so key. You know, sometimes like I wind up selling my two locations by myself. Uh, one was in California, one was in Florida. I did it at different times. And, uh, but i'm sure i probably made a lot of mistakes and you know i there, it's highly likely that i that i left money on the table and i know one of them took me a really long time to sell the business wasn't quite mature yet though but we had already moved and i just didn't want to deal with it anymore but yeah i mean next time i i think uh i don't know if i'd plan to do it do it on my own
1: <laughs> well, you, you know you make a great point there just about how long the process can take you know sometimes people feel like well i've got a really popular franchise, we're representing a group of of five units right now in a very popular franchise, and they thought this particular franchise is so hot. It's just going to be smooth and it's going to sell like crazy and it'll be just off the market. But we found a buyer relatively quickly, but the whole diligence process, attorneys get involved, it can really slow that down. And and so that's one of the things to remember that when you're ready to sell, realize that it could take could take three months if you had somebody sitting right there with you with money in hand, or it could take six or even nine months to really get the deal done.
0: Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, really interesting. Cause in 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 what I do now, I have a a number of clients that buy resales. It's kind of become a, a specialty mm-hmm. of mine and in really a coaching capacity. Uh, right, because I'm not like a licensed broker or anything like that, but in a coaching capacity, just kind of helping them through navigating some of the due diligence and and contingencies and different things like that. And but what's cool is I would have never had that experience if I wouldn't have went and sold my my, my businesses on my own. But yeah, sometimes the process can can yeah definitely take a, a long long time. So cool, man. Well, so how how in the how in the world did you get into doing this? Like, like this isn't something that you sit around as a kid, like, one day I want to help people like sell their businesses, right?
1: Yeah, no. in fact, it never even crossed my mind. And back in like 2006, I had a buddy of mine come to me and says, hey, we need to open up an M&A, like a, a boutique uh, level to kind of serve this area. I said, well, I don't, I don't know anything about that. I'd owned several businesses, And when I sold those, I didn't go through a process like this. I'm like you. I just found somebody that was willing to buy it. So I had no real clue about representation or any of those things. And so that started in 2006. And then in 2010, we merged in with Car Riggs and Ingram, which is a top CPA firm here in the U.S. I think maybe their top 20 or somewhere around there. And because that was going to be corporate, I decided, hey, I'm going to pull back out. And I'm just going to go and do my own thing. Did a lot of training, a lot of speaking, a lot of online courses uh, that I taught. And so all of that took place. And then about, I guess it was about five years ago, uh, one of the partners, Joel, called me and and said, hey, uh, I've got something to run by you. You you want to catch some breakfast? I said, sure. So we went to breakfast and he was telling me about this position. So, man, I, I think I know two or three guys would be perfect for that. He said, well, we think it's you. I said, well, it can't <laughs> be me. I'm working out of my house. I don't have a schedule. This doesn't sound like me. It sounds like some structure." <laughs> and so we were laughing about that. And he said, um, well, you know, we'd love for you to be out front with the owners, having all the initial discussions, you know, determining what their company's worth. And so I don't tend to run the process. I tend to have that initial meeting just to decide what's the best course. Sometimes I meet with somebody. And yep, you need representation. Let's move forward. Other times I'm working with three clients right now. They don't really need full representation. They just need to make sure like what you're talking about. Let's make sure the, the diligence is okay. Let's make sure the structure is okay. But they don't need that full head-on support to go yeah. all the way through the process. And so, you know, I, I thought, well, okay, I'll do that. And so that's that's worked out really well. Just love meeting with business owners just because they've put their heart and soul into something uh, they, some, for some of them, this is going to be the only time they sell their business in their life. You know, and they're looking to make sure that they get out at a level that secures their future. So we're cognizant of all of that, you know, and, uh, I'm working with a couple of franchise owner right now that we're not even charging them. We're just simply having conversations with them. They're going to be bought internally. They already had somebody at the table and they were just kind of nervous about a couple of facets, so we're happy to to give some direction on that without going, okay, we're signing you to this full engagement. Get ready to spend your life savings in this process. <laughs> so we're just not wired that way. Part of that could just be our Southern heritage that we don't want to be uh, treated unfairly. And so we want to treat people fairly as well.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome. Very cool. And for this is actually for me and for the viewers, what's the difference between, you know, what you do in your firm versus if someone went out and hired a business broker, or is there any difference?
1: There, There is somewhat of a difference. Often a business broker is going to work a little bit more locally, and the the size of the transaction tends to be a little bit smaller, uh, whereas we tend to play in a field that's called lower middle market. And so we're looking for businesses that probably have a revenue of around $5 million or above, uh, and some of those can can get pretty serious. But our buyers tend to be, you know, not just the corporate level, but also that private equity level that often business brokers aren't really playing in that field. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. it's just a different form of of what direction do you need? In fact, this morning, I recommended uh, someone to to go online and do some research because we weren't a great fit for them. But I want to make sure that they got helped. And so they're going to be using a local business broker because it's a really small local company that our national contacts may not be interested in. But they probably have a couple of dozen buyers locally that could be very interested in this company. But what we don't do is come in and say, uh, since we don't have your local contacts, we're just going to try to figure it out. We're like, OK, it's really best for you to do something locally. Let's do that. And so that, that tends to be a little bit of the difference between a business broker and somebody like us that technically we're labeled an investment bank, but I found that nobody knows what that is. And so <laughs> I usually just say we're, we're kind of in that five million above range. So that, that tends to, to connect a little bit better.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because when I went on the website uh, uh, for, for your firm, I noticed that it said a Fenrir registered Register Broker-Dealer. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's uh that's very interesting. So that's the that's the world that I come from. Yeah. I I started getting my investment licenses uh when I was uh 19 about 15 years ago or so and wow. and uh, so I was in financial services for many years un- until um about 2017 2018 after opening our our first franchise. So wow. I I know what that's like to deal with that Level of regulation, it's strict. I mean, it's no it, joke. It is very
1: strict. Yeah. And my background's marketing. Um, and so I would, um, I came in, you know, with the marketer mindset. And mm-hmm. they were compliant, said, no, you can't say that. You can't say <laughs> anything's guaranteed. You can't make a promise. And so changing all my language to, uh, you might receive possibly yeah. this would happen. I thought that was really interesting, but it really hadn't made a difference. You know, I was thinking, "Well, oh, that sounds like soft language. But then I yeah. found out that's really better uh, for the client because it, it manages expectations a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not any big, you know, giant promises that are being made. Uh, we'll we'll definitely have clients that will come in and say, um, you know, I, we didn't really like your, your market assessment because I already had a group say they'd pay me twice that. And we said, well, they're probably not registered, and most likely they're going to retrade. They're going to tell you this price up front, but then they're going to get in to look at everything and realize you are doing some things wrong, and they'll start cutting that price back. So, so I think we're probably about 90% accurate when we give a number. It's pretty close to being in line with that. But again, what I said earlier is that we usually say, this is the number you're going to hear. It's mm. not necessarily this is the amount you're going to actually receive. Hopefully, it would be above that. But on average, here's the type of offers that you'll get. And it's been interesting the number of people who received a big number of promise come back later and go, "Yeah, that number that wasn't right." They were they were just blowing <laughs> some smoke and just trying to get me signed up and and all those kind of things. So it's kind of interesting how that works sometimes.
0: Oh, I'm sure people play all kinds of games. Well, I this is this is an exciting conversation because you know we were we were kind of saying before we hit record or maybe this that part will get interjected that you know for people that you know a lot of people that maybe are working for a company and doing well <clears throat> like if you work for a company 10 or 15 years you can't sell your job back right. to the company no matter how much revenue you produce for that company so the idea that you can go out and build a business and, okay, yes, you might have to work harder in your business and sacrifice more time, and it's constantly on your mind. But when you're ready to leave, you can sell. I mean, that, that is a, that's a totally different mindset that I think, you know, I don't know that everyone realizes, and hopefully this conversation will kind of wake them up to it. But in the franchise world, I'm sure you're seeing this a lot. Uh, what I'm seeing is constant articles and uh, – You know, PR newswires going out about this private equity firm buying this franchise. There's a lot of consolidation happening, not only Mm -hmm. within franchisors, um, but them also buying groups, like you said, or or or, you know, five unit deals or or different things like that, which is really interesting. Did you did you hear about um, Exponential Fitness? They're publicly traded now. They're yes. a big franchisor, and they bought a brand called Rumble for an obscene amount of money. I think it was like three, four hundred million dollars or something like that. When
1: they had like four locations. Now I didn't see that piece. I rem- I remember a little bit of that <laughs> that news wire coming out, but that's really interesting because they're just seeing how they can expand it. You know, they're thinking, here's how we're going to grow this. They've already got a plan that they believe in. They've already got money back in them. You know, so so to be able to see that possibility early, and that's one of the things that Private Equity Group really loves to do is to come in and buy the franch- franchisor. They love to do that. Doesn't always happen. But once you see that happen, their next step is usually, not all the time, but then they start approaching the owner's. Because they want to scoop all of them in. You know, so let's let's just say that you saw that a group bought, I don't know, Kentucky Fried Chicken. And they bought that group. And then suddenly, as a owner, you can say, okay, they're getting ready to acquire as many as possible. Because what do they want to do? They want to own as many locations as possible so they can then sell it all collectively to the next group. Mm-hmm. And the, the more owners that they have out there uh, that are not coming back into the system, then that's just part of their profits they're going to miss on their exit. So they're mm. thinking about this collective and just how many they can get. And so another thing that's kind of interesting, it really depends on the popularity of the franchise, but if you're in a popular franchise, then even selling one unit is not hard. Because if there is someone out there that has as as many units as possible and they make it a goal, actually I I want I may be incorrect on this, um, but I think that there's a gentleman that lives here in Montgomery that decided, hey, I'm going to end up owning 250 Burger Kings. And last, last I looked at his count, which was a couple of years ago, he was at like 135. But he decided, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy as many as possible. And so somebody like that who actually announces in an article, I'm going to buy as many of these as possible. Well, then there's really an opportunity for other owners if the timing's right for them. Uh, Because most of those guys are not out there, you know, buying anything that's distressed. They're wanting to buy some good, solid locations, and they'll pay a fair price for that. You know, maybe not as much for a single location as they would if it was 10 locations, but still that possibility is there. And certainly, like I mentioned before, if you knew some other owners that you could get together and sell all of the units together to a a person or a group like that, there's an advantage on that value-wise.
0: Interesting. So... In terms of valuations, like to piggyback mm-hmm. on that, what do you see are the industries that have – are there industries that have higher valuations than others? And if so, what are they? And what what is the overall – if you could put just like a standard range around kind of what a valuation multiple can kind of look like, mm-hmm. what does that look like? And then what industries do you see may have higher valuations or what can impact the valuation in the most significant way besides cash flow?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it, let's start with impact, and then we'll go to some of the multiples. You know, impact can be anything as as little, I say as little, as the owner, it, it like the actual franchise being dependent on the owner. Like the owner can't leave it, mm-hmm. you know, so that the buyer's going to now have to put somebody in the owner's place. That can be a little bit of a challenge. Now, if it's another... Uh, franchisee, it's not that much of a challenge because they understand the system and what they're doing there. But some of these groups don't really like to have to come in and do a full replacement. Whereas if the owner is, is not the operator, but is more of the overseer, doesn't tend to be a problem too much with that. Um, I think some other things, and most of the time with a franchisee, they've got some pretty good books. But if there's not really professional financials done, uh, yeah. that can be a little bit of a challenge. Uh, sometimes owners get a little bit nervous because some can be running some some things through their business that they're nervous about, that on the tax side, you know, they're getting the tax break on it. But when it comes to our side, we want to add back as much as possible to get their EBITDA level or their net income level as high as possible, right? And yeah. so um, that doesn't hurt the owner as much as they think it does sometimes. Uh, mm. And so that, but making sure that the... the um, the financials are really done by a qualified CPA professional, uh, can really make a difference. Um, other things that can make a difference is just making sure that you've operated according to all the procedures and regulations. You know, normally you have, but every now and then there's somebody trying to slip some things through uh, with their franchise. None of your people would do that, but we're <laughs> it out there in the marketplace. So that can that can make a difference. And then um, whether or not that it's a competitive bidding process can make a difference. You know, if there's, like I mentioned earlier, if there's one buyer at the table, totally different than if you've got five buyers at the table. So that can affect value a a little bit. Uh, Let's see, what else? Well, I guess a multiple-wise, it really depends on what it is. So let's say it's in the um, restaurant space, then it could be as low as a 3x multiple, uh, and it, it might be as high as seven, depending on the popularity and also depending on locations. Uh, if you're yeah. talking about the health market, like a couple of years ago, I guess about three years ago, uh, there were a lot of groups really rolling up dentistry offices in, in franchises. And they were paying, you know, around 10, sometimes as high as 12. You know, so health care tends wow. to be higher. Anything say anything, and I've got, got to make sure I'm not saying anything that sounds all inclusive. Um, <laughs> what they really love is recurring revenue. So if, if the franchise is either recurring or it's repetitive, uh, repetitive, you're going to see it in a restaurant, obviously, if it's doing well, the same people are coming back through pretty regularly. If it's recurring, let's say it's car wash system, very popular, especially because they've now got so many of those systems that are Doing the the monthly subscription, so anything subscription based can be really good. Anything in the pet space, you know, we we would say that you've got people that are, um, I guess you know, with pets, we we that's part of our family, and so anything mm-hmm. in that space can do well. And uh, veterinary clinics were being rolled up a while back, and so mm-hmm. that's kind of interesting. And those always tend to be a little bit higher. Uh, multiples than something that might be considered more basic like a restaurant.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I never thought about the uh the pet industry. So those those are some good points, which you talked about, okay, if you're owner operator or uh or semi absentee kind of um <clears throat> the industry, those those are interesting uh, uh different uh points. Um and then so out you know outside of just uh you know, just pure profitability, like a lot of people talk about owning real estate for your franchise. You mentioned this with the with the Arby's transaction, mm-hmm. 48 locations, 36 parcels of real estate. How often do you do you see that happening in transactions <clears throat> and how does that how does that impact a sale or the like the potential complexity and even value?
1: Yeah. It it tends to not it, it tends to not impact the value of the business itself, mm. unless the location's just so prime that somebody's like, okay, I've got to have that piece of real estate with it because of where it's located. But it's usually a good time to sell the real estate as well if you're going to sell it, because... Even if the new franchisee is not wanting the real estate, there are a lot of other groups, third-party groups out there that are more than happy to buy the real estate and then do a lease back and start a new lease with that new owner. So we see that Mm -hmm. a pretty good bit uh, because private equity tends to not, and we do about 70% 70 of our deals are private equity, uh, they tend to not want to own the real estate. But they don't. What they'll do is sometimes they'll actually buy the real estate with the package and then sell the real estate off and then just do a lease back with somebody else who's really into real estate. Um, But really, it have to be location to make the biggest difference in value. But as far as selling the real estate at the same time, usually not too difficult. But it it does make the, the transaction a little bit more complex. But you know not. Not so much that it's not worth moving forward with it. If you feel the timing's right to sell the real estate as well. Uh, We're we're selling a company right now that has a pretty large amount of real estate. And the parents of the owner own the real estate but don't want to sell it. And so they're just continuing the lease, which is, we feel like it's pretty substantial, but it's like their regular (laughs) living income. So that's fine too. If you want to hold it and lease it to whoever the buyer is, not a problem
0: yeah that's fascinating so for you know for people watching you get the opportunity to you know buy the real estate if you're opening up a franchise uh, do it and what's uh i recently uh, a few episodes back i interviewed an sba guy that works mm. for uh for a big bank that that does a lot of sba loans and and he was talking about how when you are buying the real estate in that transaction you get a 30-year term on the real estate as opposed to a 10-year term on the SBA loan, which is very interesting and makes it much more realistic for, right. for someone to be able to afford that,
1: right? Yeah, that makes a big difference because you when you're talking about that loan length and being able to afford it because you can have a deal crash because the lease is just too much or the payment's going to be too much. Because one of the things that we do when we're working on financials is that we put them in the format that the buyer wants to see it. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we're always having to ask the question, okay, so if you're leasing your own property to yourself, is it in a separate entity, and are you paying market price? And if you're not paying market price, if if you're not paying yourself enough, well, guess what? You're going to have to add that back in because they're going to be paying market price most likely when they come into the system especially mm-hmm. if you sell the real estate to an outside entity or group on the other hand if the market price is too high you've been just making extra money over here on the side with a high lease that's going to have to be diminished a little bit so that it's fair to that buyer cuz they're going to pay market price that they don't mind if they get a lease that's below it but they definitely don't want <laughs> it, don't want one that's above it so it makes That's a, difference. a good like 30 point. Years a good move.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting. And so, if someone ha- if someone has a business, right, and they're thinking, all right, you know, I want I want to sell in a couple of years, or I'm I'm not sure, I may want to sell soon. When when does someone need to start preparing, and what does that typical preparation process look like, both from in how they're running their business now? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes they may be running it not as lean just because it's, you know, they've been doing it a long time, whatever, it's good. It's easier to do it that way. The, the lifestyle's uh, worth the maybe the financial hit that they take. So, so what do you see on, on that end in terms of preparation, time of preparation, and when they actually can go to market and get a yeah, good,
1: good value? You make such a great point, too, about the lifestyle because that's natural for all of us. I mean, why did we get into business? Um, most of us, because we wanted to have a certain lifestyle and we wanted to either be our own boss or get away from a boss or just see an opportunity, we have a love and passion for this particular industry. And so we definitely want the fruits of that. Uh, so usually the average buyer is going to look back about five years if you've had the company that long. Mm. And then especially the last three years are going to be important. So if if about three years out, you could start making those changes, it can make a difference. The challenge is if you make all the changes in the last year or going right up to the sale, they're going to say, "Well, wait a minute. How do we know this is real and not an anomaly?" Mm-hmm. This what happened before. But there is one kind of caveat to that. Let's say that they are living out of the business and, and running it a certain way if if it can be shown that here are these ad backs that this was not normal operation expenses, but this was part of this lifestyle. Well, then those things get added back in and it lifts up EBITDA and you don't get dinged for it. Uh, if you're not running it lean or you're uh, paying people, let's say you've got uh, a brother or sister on the account, you're paying them 50000 a year, but they're not really doing anything. Well, you know, <laughs> we've seen it happen. <laughs> yeah, we've seen a lot more than that. Then, you know, they're going away. Right, And that that could get added back in because there's operating capital that's not being used correctly. So Mm -hmm. if it can be explained and defended, you're in an okay position. If you're just not running your, your company well and you're being a little bit too lax, probably about the minimum would be three years out to really build that story. It doesn't mean that you can't sell it. You could, you just may not get the maximum value for it. Uh, unfortunately, whether with a franchise or with um, just a regular company, sometimes we'll get somebody to come in and say, hey, I'm, I'm ready to sell. And we have to say, well, you, you want to sell. But you're not actually ready to sell if you want the most money. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you're running things pretty strict and, and really the, that financial piece I mentioned earlier is really a big portion of that, that the books are kept really clean uh, and really precise and really defendable is one of the biggest things that you can do. And then other than that, anything that's rolling through the company, as long as you can explain it and the the narrative is acceptable, you don't really get named too much for that.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting. And so so here's something that's been interesting to me, you know, with with some, some clients that I have looking at resales right now, some are looking at a couple in the home services space, mm-hmm. right? And <clears throat> over the past two years, Home services brands have just, uh, I mean, absolutely destroyed it because everyone's staying home. Home equ- home yeah. equity is very high. People are taking out money. They're getting it, everyone's getting their stimulus check. The stock market was going through the roof. There was all yeah. these amazing things. So how how does someone perceive that in a unique time period where maybe there is the two year track record, but then the question's like, well, that was cyclical. So so. Mm-hmm. How does someone navigate that part on the sell side and maybe even on the, on the buy side, given that the cycle can
1: change? Yeah, on the, on the sell side, the general advice is sell while you're going up. <clears throat> yeah. We, we'll have folks that will say, man, I'm just making so much money right now. Once it starts to turn, that's when I'm going to sell it. But you are not getting maximum value if you're going down. If that's mm. the direction of the business and things are cyclical, you know, right now construction is doing really well. There's a lot of build outs, but who knows now that mortgage rates have changed? What happens? You know, some of that can slow down and every buyer is going to be looking at it and they're going to know what the cycle is for the most part. And, and it's not yeah. always perfect. Uh, we just had like a nine-year construction cycle, super, super odd. Usually, it's right around four to five years. So, you know, a different trend that took place there. Uh, the COVID years, we had a company that wanted to sell that had, had did great because they were doing lab testing during those those two years of COVID. And they couldn't sell based on that because they knew it would be a shift, You know, Mm. they would tell everybody, look, we're doing all these millions of dollars. And they're going, well, yeah, but are you going to be able to sustain that? You know, and that's usually the question. Is this sustainable? And they know the markets well enough to know it's sustainable or not. And you know that there's certain brands uh, in franchise that tend to be very stable and others tend to be very cyclical. I mean, who would have thought, too, that during COVID that a lot of fast food franchises because their drive throughs stayed open. Some of those really escalated, you know. And we even have a group of 10 restaurants, uh, more in the fast casual sector, where uh, it was three owners, one owned five, one owned three, one owned two. The guy who owned five immediately shifted to curbside service and built an outdoor deck. Mm. Had two incredible years. The other two did not, did not make that move. They had mm. to terrible years and so even when you're looking at that story the guy with five did something that was fairly sustainable simply because even with some of the, the things being lifted now with you know covid not necessarily being you know taken away but now we've got a lot more freedom people aren't wearing masks they still find that their curbside and their outdoor space is doing really well so that's continuing mm-hmm. to pay off so that's all part of i guess we'd say the narrative that explains why that's going to continue for this one person, and probably going to take a while to rebuild for these other two owners. No, if that that really answers the question, but you know that's what we're seeing in some of these some of these lanes is that most of the buyers know whether it's a trend or not, um, mm. and sometimes they're going to use that to try to drive value down, you know, yeah. by saying. And so the option there is to say, well, we think it's going to continue. And we're not a huge fan of an earnout, but let's say that you wanted to get five million dollars, and they said no way. We think that it's worth you know three and a half, and you're thinking, well, there's a million and a half at play here. Let's if if business continues at a certain level, let's do this earnout of a million and a half, so that I end up getting my five. And sometimes oh, the buyer the risk on that because if the future remains the same, then they hit those milestones then they're able to to get some money that they wouldn't have at close. But we're real big at, like, get as much money at closing as possible.
0: Yeah, sure, of course. Yeah, because you're <laughs> representing the seller. You're representing the yeah. seller. Like, get your money and get, and, and get out of there, which, uh, yeah, uh, yeah that, is a, that is a respected position. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Interesting. All right, that's uh, yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. I had never heard of uh, Not That's a new new one for me. That's uh, that's that seems pretty cool. So what do you? I will
1: put Let me put a little bit of caution with that because it really depends on the group, and we try to work with obviously equitable groups and groups of high integrity. But sometimes it's another reason to have representation is that sometimes we'll have a client who feels like oh, we can grow by 25% next year, even though they've never grown at more than 10%. Well, a buyer may say, oh, 25% growth? Yeah, I'll put some milestones in that you've got to hit 25% growth if you're going to get your earnout, And if you don't hit that number, you don't get that money. So, you know, we have to be really cautious on the structure to make the earnout as attainable as possible instead mm. of it just being... In the, the client's mind, like, oh, I've got another million dollars out there, a million two dollars out there or two million dollars out there. Well, the buyer may want it to be difficult to get that money. What we're trying to do is make sure it's easy as possible to get that money.
0: Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. And so, uh, last question is: What are you what are you seeing as the trend in the in the marketplace right now? Are Are you having more people reaching out to you, trying to exit and mm-hmm. sell out of their businesses? Is it Is it less? And and how long how long do you think that trend will last? If there is a trend.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good one. I wish I had the crystal ball on it. I will say, as far <laughs> as conversations, conversations are through the roof. There's a lot of people talking right now. There's a little bit of nerves because of the interest rate uh, structure. And even on the buy side, you know, they were borrowing like, say, 60% and 40% equity on a deal, and they may have to move that to 60% equity of 40% in debt, and it changes their dynamic, their risk profile, uh, what they're trying to tell the, re- the investors what the return is going to be. So all of those things are a little bit in play, but... It it tends to be that the multiples are still remaining fairly strong, not as high as they were about three years ago, but fairly strong. And there's still a lot of appetite in the industries, almost as a whole, of the buyers being out there and being active. I think at last count, like private equity funds alone had maybe, I know it was over a trillion. I want to say about two trillion in what's called dry powder. Basically, this is uh, committed capital. That they've got investors that say, yeah, if you go out and find a deal that everybody approves of, I guarantee that I'm sending you my hundred thousand or five hundred thousand or a million. So that's actually committed capital. And that started to decrease just a little bit, but they make money when that capital is deployed, right? So if they if they never deploy that capital, it's never an opportunity to gain that that result. So they're out there looking for deals. They're not making dumb purchases, though. They're continuing to do their diligence and investigate. So it looks like we we're having a conversation here in the office this morning about it. It looks like that there should be another good year of, of some solid progress, but we can't really see beyond that. But we're not we're not hearing a lot of negative conversations from buyers right now.
0: Yeah. That's cool. Well, it's an exciting time. I mean, again, I just keep hearing stories and stories about record level multiples that that mm-hmm. that franchise, either uh, smaller fr- emerging franchise brands are being sold for, or that you know uh, a franchisor or P group b- b- buying a, a big territory or buying mm-hmm. out a big owner. So it's uh, it's just a, a really exciting thing to to think about, and and I think a lot of mo- very motivating. For people out there that are entrepreneurs or that have a dream of one day having a successful exit, which is you can pull this off. So keep grinding, keep working. And then what, you know, once you're ready, you can hit Paul up and Paul can help you sell your business. (laughs)
1: I'll tell you one more thing, just super quick is that, you know, if, if you're wondering if the timing's right, we don't ever try to get into timing too much. If you feel like now's my time, you know, when you go to market, until you get all the way to the end, it's still your decision. If you don't get the number you like or you don't like the structure, nobody's going to be standing there forcing you to do a deal that's not good for you, not right for you, not best for you. Your family doesn't like it. Uh, and so that's a great thing, too, is, is that we're not real big on people just going out and just testing the market, especially if we've got a lot of time involved in it. But at the same time, it's, it, it is a, a, a challenging process. But at least you hold all the cards till the end.
0: Mm, that's a great. Yeah, that's a really that's a really great point. You can always say no. All right, no, I'm yeah. not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So where can uh, where can people either follow you and or get a hold of you if they you know if they have a business and you know they want to reach out and get some help?
1: Yeah, happy to. You can uh, visit us online at criadv.com. Criadv.com. Uh, you can also look me up at paul at paulbevans.com. Uh, and uh, yeah, Paul, yeah, actually, that was my email, paul at paulbevans.com, or just go to paulbevans.com to, to look up some more information. And certainly through you, they contact you and want to have a conversation. Happy to do that. Love the work that you're doing. Love how you're helping people really find that right fit. It's so critical. I I don't know if it's the most important decision, but I feel like it is. I think it's so critical to make sure that the selection that you made when you're investing your time, your energy and resources into a franchise, it needs to be one that is a great fit for you. So I've loved learning more about your work and how you're helping people.
0: Yeah, awesome. Thanks man. And we'll make sure to uh we'll make sure to put the links in uh in the YouTube video in the description so that way it's Great. it's nice and uh, nice and easy to uh to get a hold of you. But uh awesome man, thanks so much for uh for coming on. I really enjoyed it. Hey, thank you. Hey, before we go, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I put my heart and soul into providing you value through this podcast so that you can live your dream life. So please subscribe if you haven't already. And the biggest thank you you could ever give me is to drop a review because more reviews equal this podcast getting more listens, which means we can share this message with more people and hopefully positively inspire them like we have you. You can also share it with someone you care about that you believe may benefit from listening. Thank you and talk to you soon.